It's been said, life is hard and then you die. You, you know the statement. You're, you're familiar with the, the statement. Where this is true, it's, it's true in the basic sense of the statement, right? Life is hard and then you do die. Both of those aspects of that sentence are true. The statement connotes a, a fatalistic misery to life. And it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to have that outlook on life. Yes, the reality is that life can be hard. There are hard things that happen to us in life. And then there's just the hard work of life. Life has hard work associated with it. God put man and woman. Where did he put them? He put them in a garden. Of all places, a garden. Why a garden? Because a garden needs to be tended. It needs to be cultivated. If left to itself, a garden will tend toward chaos. But then, even in that responsibility that they were given to tend and cultivate the garden, they disobeyed God. Man and woman disobeyed God. They disobeyed the command of God. They fell into sin. And after, the, after they had fallen into sin, God came and found them. And in that time when he's talking to them, after they had sinned, God said to Adam, picking it up in Genesis 3, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And then picking it up, verse 19, you'll see it on the screen. It says this, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, this isn't one of those verses that we like to be reminded of, but we are all too familiar with the reality of it. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So basically, you're going to have hard work. Hard work to eat, to live. You're going to sweat. There will be what they call sweat equity involved in surviving. The, the biggest principle that we learn to this end is being productive. That... God has called us to being productive in our lives. We talk about being and becoming a productive member of society. You hear this type of idea. And we need to be a productive member of society. This is a biblical charge. Sometimes there are problems that arise. Problems are magnified sometimes due to a lack of productivity. Tonight, we'll see how Jacob became productive. Not only productive, but he set himself to a labor of love. And this is ultimately what God has called us to. Because he has demonstrated to us the greatest labor of love that was ever worked out in the history of the universe and has called us also to a labor of love in our lives. And so tonight, I've got a couple of points if you're taking notes 
The first one is this, be productive. Let's look at this in Genesis chapter 29. Let's pick it up, verse 1. It says this, So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked, and he saw in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of the well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And they said to them, Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to him, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go feed them. But they said, we cannot all, uh, until all the flocks are gathered together, and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came up with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass When Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. A labor of love, we're called, in a labor of love, we're called to be productive. We're called to be productive. God wants us to be productive in life. I believe That there is a way that every person can be productive. You say, can every person be productive? I believe that there's a way that every single person can be productive. We only need to find it and discover what it is and so that we can be productive. Other than a very small fractional percentage of people that I might put into a category of those that are extremely mentally ill, okay, other than a very small fraction of people like that. But I've found even people that are mentally ill, some of them can find um, areas of productivity in their life. And certainly those with physical limitations. I, you know, I talk about Nick Vijekic all the time, the guy that was born with no arms and no feet and is just a preacher of the gospel and goes throughout the world and does nothing slows him down. I mean, he's out there preaching the gospel and surfing with Bethany Hamilton, okay? So, I mean, he's an example of let nothing slow you down, let nothing cause you to be unproductive. And we're called to be productive. Everyone can be productive. And we see this with Jacob. He decides, remember last chapter, we've had a couple weeks off from Genesis because we had, we had uh, Palm Sunday where we talked about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And then, of course, we had last week, we had Easter and just the victory of the cross and the resurrection and, and the Lord uh, doing uh, deathly damage to the work of Satan. Amen. And so, um, and so now we pick it back up, but you'll remember in Genesis 28 that it was in that chapter where we are told that, that 
Jacob fleeing from his house and going uh, from that place, that he found that uh, stone of a pillow and that place where he had the vision of the Lord and the, the ladder ascending uh, into heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the ladder. And of course, the Lord spoke to him and delivered to him the promise of the covenant. And it was a, it was a, it was a, a night to remember. Amen. <laughs> you know, the stairway to heaven. And, and there it was. And, and of course, he was just blown away. He was amazed at, at the experience of, of, of what he saw. And he, he set out a feast and he did all kinds of, he renamed the place. It was from that moment forward, it was called Beth El, the house of God. Certainly this is the gateway to heaven. And so we pick it up in this particular chapter where, where he's continuing on from Beth El in this journey. And he's going on and he comes to the land of the east and he comes a, a, across uh, some shepherds that were there with their flocks. And it says three flocks, three, three flocks of sheep lying there and there was a well. And of course, then the well had a stone on it and I tried to picture in my mind three flocks of sheep. Well, no, I, I started with trying to picture a flock of sheep. You know, a flock of sheep is a lot of sheep and then you have three flocks. I mean, we're talking about a lot of sheep, you know, just one of those things where it's like, ah, everywhere. You know, sheep, sheep, sheep everywhere. And this is the... The, the, the setting that Jacob finds himself coming upon. And there was the well, and a large stone was on the well's mouth. And he began to talk to the, the brothers there, and he introduced himself, and, and they had a conversation, and went back and forth about, do you know Laban, and all this, and then got down to like, well, what's going on here? Are you watering the sheep? or Well, we can't do that, and it's not time, and this and that, and the other guys haven't come to take the stone off, of the, off the mouth of the well. And, you know, in back in those days, I mean, these stones, when you talk about a stone, it wasn't like some little rock or pebble, you know, oh, put the rock back on the, you know, I mean, these were large stones and more than likely this, this wasn't something that one person could do by himself. And so they were just kind of sitting there waiting for somebody else to come along and, and do the work of taking the, <laughs> you know, taking the, you know, do the work of taking the stone off of the mouth of this well. So anyways, so he, he goes through this conversation. Do you know Laban? So on and so forth. And oh yeah, here comes Laban's daughter, Rachel. And she's coming up with the sheep and she's a shepherdess. She's caring for the sheep of her father, Laban. And she's coming up. She's a shepherdess. She's watching her father's sheep. And then look at verse, look down at verse 10. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of uh, Laban, his mother's brother. This verse is called being productive. <laughs> okay? This is like, and when you see a pretty girl, it might be like, you know, get you going on being productive, you know, because I, I want to have a family someday. There's some, some type of promise that the Lord's given me about, you know, my seed and the, all the families of the earth being blessed through the seed. And you know, somewhere, you know, the Lord told that same thing to my grandfather and my father, and now that's been delivered to me. And so it's time I get busy, and here's a pretty girl, and, and I came all the way out here, and so let's get busy. Let's get productive. Let's move the rock off of this well. And it seems to me, 
It seems to me from looking at the text that he just did this single-handedly. It just, you know, it doesn't say that Jacob was helped by everyone else in the village to move the rock. It was like, you know, you never know what you can do when you set your mind to it, amen? <laughs> Especially when a beautiful woman is involved, you know? I mean, you can do this, guys. And so um, being productive. Don't let, you know, this is one of those messages where the women will be reminding us about this, okay? <laughs> <clears throat> but that's good. That's okay. Praise the Lord for being reminded of the, the, the good things of the word. Amen. So he just gets busy. He gets productive. He, it seems to me, again, that he moved this rock by himself. And not only that, but he waters the, all the sheep. And it just does the whole thing. Waters the sheep. And then verse 11 then he, then Jacob kissed Rachel. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, he's just getting, get, getting after it, you know, the promise of the Lord, you know? And, and so, you know, it's, it's this idea that we have that we're called to be productive. And I don't know what it is that we need, you know, sometimes we, we just need a you know, a, a push in the right direction. We need maybe some guidance. We need, you know, just the leading of the Lord. But when we get that, we need to, we need to go with it because God wants us to be productive. So anyways, Rachel runs back to the house and tells her dad that, you know, I, I met this guy. He's our relative. His name is Jacob and so on and so forth. So Laban runs out of the house and runs out to meet Jacob. He greets him and kisses him and embraces him, and he brings, us into the, it brings him into the house. Now look at verse 14. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he, speaking of Jacob, stayed with him for a month. So here, Laban, Rachel's dad, uh, Rebecca's brother is receiving Jacob into the house. He's saying, look, we're, you're, you're, you're of my bone, you're of my flesh. In other words, we are family. It was kind of a sister sledge type of a moment, you know. And, and, and he just invited him right into the house. And the sentence, the verse closes with, and he stayed there for a month. And the productivity that we saw in verse 10 continues as Jacob comes into the house through that month, that he continues to work uh, and, 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 and be productive in the household and doing things and working. And how do we know that? Because we know that from the very next verse that we haven't read yet, but verse 15, Laban comes to him and says, I should pay you for doing this work, right? So we'll get into that in a minute. But anyway, so we know that for the month that, that, um, that Jacob has gotten busy with just being productive being very productive, and we are to be productive. I believe God wants us to continue to be productive, doing something, uh, working, serving, blessing others, finding a way to serve, to be a blessing, to, to, to be productive, to, you know, even when we get to that latter portion of our life, that we, that we continue to do things, that we don't just kind of slow down and go over and sit in a corner and you know, play solitaire, you know, that, that we're called to, to be productive. Amen? Amen. And, uh, you know, I look at the great examples of men and women that have just, you know, continued on all the way through their life, you know, and, uh, and, and, and what an awesome 
example they have been. The corollary to that is this. When people become idle and unproductive, they become, well, they can become self-centered. They can become a burden to others, wasteful, and sometimes they just go nuts. When you become unproductive, I think it will get to you psychologically, mentally. And I think that there's something to the idea of, and I'm not saying you necessarily have to keep working a job. We're not talking about that. We're talking about being productive. We're talking about cultivating the garden that you're in. You're, you're in a garden. God placed Adam and Eve in a garden, but you have a garden that God gave you. He gave you a home. He gave you a residence. He gave, how, how, any homeless here tonight? No? Okay, so you have a residence, so you have, you have somewhere to be productive. How many have relationships with other human beings? Okay, you have multiple gardens, okay, to cultivate, and those gardens need to be cultivated, okay? So we need to be busy in all these areas um, in, in, that, in that work, in that productivity, in that cultivation. And, and it's a general principle in life, I think, that we need to carry forward. We need to grab hold of it. We need to embrace it. And we need to think about that as we go on into our lives. Now, we have a cross-section of people here. We have some younger people. We have some um, early middle-aged people, some middle-aged people, and some, you know, elderly. <laughs> Amen. And, uh, and so this message is for all of us. This message is for every one of us, no matter where we are on the journey of life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, so that's the first point. First point is be productive. And you never know what God's going to do when you just continue to be productive. God, uh, it, it, things happen when you are, you know, doing stuff. So secondly, the second point is this. Love why you do what you do. Love why you do what you do. Let's pick it back up in our text, Genesis chapter 29. Let's pick it up, verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters, and the name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. And now Jacob loved Rachel. And so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her, and Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. And then Jacob did so, and, and the fulfillment and fulfillment fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife also. And Laban gave his 
made Billa to his daughter Rachel as a maid. And then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard me that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she stopped bearing. First point, be productive in your life. Second one, love why you do what you do. We need to love why we do what we do. And I'll explain that a little later. So Laban wants to pay Jacob for his labor and asks him what his wages should be. And what does he want? He wants Rachel. He has fallen head over heels in love with Rachel, and he wants Rachel. And he asks him what his wage, uh, Laban asks Jacob what his wages should be, and he says, I want Rachel. Now, he does not have anything. He, remember, he has fled out of the house, and so he doesn't have anything in his hand. He doesn't have really anything to his name. So he doesn't even have what in, in the... Hebrew culture was called the bride price, the dowry or the bride price. He does not have the bride price. And so what he basically get, gets into an agreement with Laban is, is I will work seven years for the dowry for Rachel. I will work seven years for the bride price um, and so that you will give me Rachel as a wife. And so Laban agrees. And so Jacob works seven years to pay the bride price for Rachel. And I want you to look at verse 20. And I'll actually have this one on the screen for you. And we'll explain our second point here. Genesis 29, 20. And this is what it says. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. Wow, what a verse. What a verse. That, by definition, is a labor of love. Amen? Um, it's been said, love what you do and you'll never work another day in your life. You've, you've heard that? Love what you do and you'll never work another day in your life. And that is true. If at all possible, do what you love or love what you do, which are actually two different things. Do what you love is, do, do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life, that's actually going out and just living out the love and the passion uh, that you have in your life to do. And if that is kind of something that you can monetize and become economically viable, hey, awesome, you're living the life, right? Because you're doing what you love. But then you can also learn how to love what you do. And that's actually learning to love the work that that has been placed into your hand. And so uh, I think both of those are true. However you want to say the sentence, love what you do and you'll never work another day in your life or, love, or do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life. 
But here it seems to me that there's another principle that's involved that's completely different than those two, okay? There's another principle that's just beyond that that can be applied universally to all of us, to every single person here. Love why you do what you do. Love why you do what you do. Jacob did the work, and he worked for seven years, and it seemed like only a few days. Why? Because of how much he loved Rachel. Why was he doing what he was doing? Why was he working the seven years? He was doing it because he loved Rachel. And because he loved Rachel, because of the why, because the why was something that he loved, the work seemed only, and this is what the text says, it seemed only a few days. Seven years seemed only a few days. Why? Because he loved Rachel. So he loved why he was doing it, and it seemed only a few days. So there are really two questions. What do you do, and why do you do it? These are questions that you can ask yourself. These are philosophical questions, okay? The, the, you, you know, although those are simple questions. No, no, these are actually deep philosophical questions that you need to think about more than for a couple seconds. What do you do, and why do you do it? If the answer to these two questions is, I don't know, then it's time to find something else to do and a reason and purpose for your life. Amen? (laughs) That's what you need. You need a reason and a purpose for living, and God will give you that. Is anyone here, did did anyone take philosophy in high school or college? Philosophy, a little bit of of philosophy? Yeah. Philosophy is fun. How many love, how many like philosophy? How many don't like philosophy? Okay. All right, well, I'm going to give you a little bit tonight. I don't know if you've ever heard of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was the king of Ephyra, which became, became known as the town of Corinth. And he was punished for his craftiness and deceitfulness. This is actually out of Greek mythology. And he was punished for his craftiness and deceitfulness by being forced to roll an immense boulder up a hill only for it to roll down when it can't comes near the top, repeating this action for eternity. Okay, so this has become a lesson in philosophy about the futileness of life. It's actually called, in philosophy, the Sisyphus Dilemma. And the problem is this, that if, if your life amounts to this reality, that you're rolling a stone up a hill, a, a large hill, Okay, so every day you get up, you wake up, you're rolling this stone up a hill. And when you finally get it right to the top, here's the top, and you're right here. And when you finally get to the top, the stone rolls all the way down to the bottom, and you've got to go all the way down to the bottom and start all over again. Okay, so this shows the, fut- the futility of life, and certainly the futility of life without God. It's true that without God, all life is completely meaningless. Now, I know atheists do not like you to tell them that. And they say, well, how sad for you that, you're, that you have that viewpoint. No, 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 I'm trying to tell you your worldview. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you basically what all the nihilists actually knew was that without God, everything is com- becomes completely meaningless. Life becomes completely meaningless. The only thing, the only meaning that you can attach to life outside of that is only a made-up meaning that still has no meaning because if we're all, the world is just seven billion ants right now, 
and it just explodes out of existence, a thousand years from now, nothing will matter that's happening right now. Okay, so if there is no God, there is no meaning to life. And this isn't just a, a, a sad view on reality. This is, the, this is the reality of the viewpoint of there is no, if there is no God. So if there is no God, then we're all Sisyphus. We're all Sisyphus. Everything that you do every day amounts to rolling up a, a, a rock up a hill, and it's going to roll down to the bottom as soon as you get to the bottom. There's no God. Every one of us are Sisyphus. Thank God there's a God. And there's meaning to life, and there's purpose, because God has instilled meaning in in us and given us a purpose as being his image upon the earth. And we have a purpose. For the Christian, we have meaning and purpose. God made us to fulfill a purpose, to know him and to live for him. We are living for the glory of his name, his glory. The kabod is a weightiness. It's a weighty glory, a splendor, a, a majesty, that we're living for. And so our lives have meaning, our lives have purpose. And if we're living for him, then we need to love why we are doing what we are doing because we ultimately are doing it for him. This is the first reason to love why you're doing what you're doing. The first reason To love why you're doing what you're doing is because we're living for the glory of God. We've been given a purpose in this life. The first reason, our love, fear, and reverence for God. And then we have other reasons, secondary reasons. Actually, I don't even want to necessarily put them as secondary reasons. I mean, there's the reason of living for the Lord. And then there's like these other things, the relationships that we have, our families, the service of the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. We have these other things that God has called us to. And so we can love why we do what we do. We can love why we do what we do. At the end of seven years, Jacob told Laban, I've worked the seven years. Now give me Rachel as my wife. And this is where Laban deceives Jacob. He gives Jacob Leah, his older daughter, instead of Rachel. And he cites some custom in their country about the oldest daughter being married off first and so on. And I read a few of the commentaries, actually, one, more than one, actually, uh, seemed to say that uh, it, Laban made this up on the spot, you know? And, uh, I mean, he's, I, I, you know, he's trying to get all of his, all of his daughters married off here, and, and so he, he gives Leah, and of course, she would have been veiled, you know, if you're wondering, you're reading the text, and you go, how did this happen, you know? Jacob finds out after the fact and, you know, consummates the marriage and the whole thing. How did, she would have been veiled, and then there would have been that consummation, and then he would have realized, hey, this isn't Rachel, this is Leah. And so, and this is all in our text, right? So, you got a couple different things going on here. You got one, you've got Jacob getting a little bit of a taste of his own medicine, right? You know, I mean, he had, he had been deceitful uh, before with, the, you know, with the, the scheme, the member of this conspiracy between Rebecca, his mom, and 
him, and they came up with the plan of deceiving Isaac the father. He had grown uh, you know, kind of blind in his old age, and they deceived him into thinking that he was Esau, and he got the blessing. He got the birthright, and then he got the blessing. And so, in a sense, you can see that there is a little bit of, of, a little bit of reaping what you sow type of a thing here. Um, not uh, karma, okay? As Christians, no, we don't believe in karma. Don't put karma and stuff on your Facebook, please. Just don't. I don't want to have to call you up and say, no, we don't believe in karma, okay? Can you take that down off your Facebook wall? Thank you very much. But the principle is there, Paul talks about it in Galatians. Do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. For whatsoever you sow, that which you shall also reap. So, and then Hosea, of course, you know, if you sow to the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. And so you need to be careful about what you're sowing every day, because you're sowing something. You're sowing something. You might be sowing love and kindness and gratitude and living for the Lord, or you might be sowing ingratitude, deceitfulness, discord. So be careful what you're sowing. But then it also brings up another topic that is, again, one of these topics that might not come up in the teaching series of your favorite hip church. <laughs> <laughs> And that is the topic of bigamy. Because basically, after, the, after Jacob realized that he's been deceived, he goes back to Laban and says, what did you do? I worked these seven years for Rachel, and you gave me leave. Makes up this custom about marrying off the first daughter for first, the firstborn daughter. And she says, look, you know, do the weak. You had, you know, the, 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 what he's referring to there is the weak of the, the wedding week, okay? This, this actually, if you understand the wedding, the Jewish wedding, understand a little bit about what we're headed for in the end times and the, you know, the whole thing where we're going to be with the Lord, okay? Don't have time to get into that tonight. That's way off topic. But there it is. There's the picture there. Okay, so do the week with Leah, and then I will give you Rachel as well, and then you'll work seven years more to pay the bride price for Rachel. So he doesn't work another seven years and then get Rachel. He does the week with Leah, he gets Rachel, and then he works another seven years. Here's the problem. He's, not, he's now got two women to please, okay? So this is tough. And this is one of the big problems with bigamy. Okay, so we're gonna discuss this for just a couple of minutes and just so, and here's, another, here's a good reason why you're here tonight. So you can say, hey, yeah, we... Bigamy, yeah. My pastor taught about that. Really? Your pastor taught on that? Sure. What did he say? Well, what the word says. Bigamy is not what God intended for man. Going back to the creation, Genesis 2.24, you'll see it on the screen. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 19, verse 5. 
when he was asked about divorce, and when, okay, and this is another thing, whenever someone says, well, Jesus never commented on this and that and that whatever aspect of marriage, he, he, he spoke absolutely directly to what a marriage is. Because when he was asked about divorce, what was the answer? He said, well, let me tell you what a marriage was in the beginning when it was created. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the definition of marriage. So, well, Jesus never talked about such and such and such. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He talked very clearly about what a marriage is, and this is the definition of a marriage. The two shall become one flesh. Now, with this situation, it created all kinds of problems and dysfunction in the home. I believe it was Dennis Prager who said, all of the families in Genesis are dysfunctional. <laughs> so that should be of great encouragement to all of you tonight, okay? We're reading through Genesis. Hey, look, we're reading these, all these chapters. Everyone's dysfunctional. Every family's dysfunctional. Can you relate? Yeah, we can all relate. But this causes all kinds of problems created a rivalry among the wives. And this becomes clear when Leah begins to bear children. She gives birth to four boys in succession. And you read that little section there, and it's like, boom, she's like a baby machine. You know? <laughs> Leah conceived and brought forth a son, and then she conceived again and brought forth a son, and then again and then again. And, you know, and it's like, whoa, wow. Give us, some, give us at least a calendar, a time frame. How did all this happen so quickly in four verses? <laughs> but it did. So <clears throat> the names of the boys declare Leah's desire to, to be loved by Jacob. Later, when the law was given at Sinai, it was forbidden to take a rival wife. Uh, you find the text in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 18. This is a chapter in the book of Leviticus that deals with sexual morality, covers everything. In case you are interested about what, you know, you can read up. But this is what it says about this. It says, nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. So, I think we've covered that, right? <laughs> Leah gave birth to a son. Leah conceived, she gave birth to a son which literally means, uh, his name was Reuben. Reuben means, behold a man. She's like, hey, a man. <laughs> you know, God, God has given me a man. He saw that I was unloved, and he gave me a man. Behold a man. She said, God has seen my affliction. So, see there, a man. <laughs> That's all very, very interesting how they named the kids back then. She, get, she conceived, she gave birth to a second son. His name was Simeon, which means to hear. It is from the same root as the, as the Hebrew Shema that you're familiar with, the, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. And she said when her second born, she named him Simeon, for the Lord has heard that I am unloved. The Lord has heard that I am in love. You see, she's, the boys are named in relationship to the agony that she is going through as being the unloved 
wife in this, this situation. And then she gave birth to, she conceived and gave birth to a third son and called his name Levi, which means to join. So she said, now my husband will be joined or attached to me. It's interesting because the Levi, Levi actually becomes the tribe of, you know, all these sons become the, the tribes of Israel, right? And so Levi becomes the tribe that is actually the tribe of the priest, the priesthood. And it's interesting because the meaning of the name, it's, it's Levi being that of attached or joined, and it's the tribe of the priesthood that whose job was to uh, relate the, the Lord and the things of God to the people. In other words, to join uh, God to the people. Now, we don't have a mediator between, there's one mediator between man, God and man, Christ Jesus, our great high priest, amen? So, <clears throat> and she, gives, she conceives, gives birth to a fourth son, and his name is called Judah, which means praise. So she said, I, now I will praise the Lord. Now I will praise Yahweh. So this is where it is all led to, the four sons of Leah. Now, in closing, and wrapping up this chapter, I want to do this. Jesus is, of course, and we've talked about this, we talk about this all the time, right? That Jesus is our example in everything, correct? Jesus is our example in everything, so he is our example in loving why we do what we do. We're, we're entered into a labor of love. And so if, that, if, if there's a calling on our lives to have a labor of love, then we can look to Jesus and see that he must be the example of that in some way. So the question is, how is it? How is it that he is our example in loving why we do what we do? You could make the case that he didn't love going to the cross. You say, what? Didn't we, didn't we just... Didn't we just talk about that for a week? How he, he wanted, he loved everybody and he went to the cross? Well, yeah, he loved everybody, but he didn't love the cross. No one loves a cross. No one wants to go to an execution. No one wants to go to a brutal beating and scourging and then a Roman crucifixion. In fact, if you'll remind yourself of the night before when he was arrested, he was praying in the garden, and he said this to the Father in his humanity, crying out, he said, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. What? He didn't love the cross, but he loved why he was going to the cross. He loved why he was going to the cross. He loved you. Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was a love. There was a love that he had. There was a joy that was set before him that made him endure the cross in the face of the cross. In fact, he, in, in that sense, he did embrace the cross, not for loving the cross, but for loving the reason that he was going to the cross for, there was set before him, there was a joy set before him. Hebrews 12, 20, uh, 12, 2. This is the passage where we see that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's the author and finisher of the faith. He's the author and perfecter. He walked everything out perfectly. He cried out to the Father in agony, sweating drops of blood. On that rock in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in fact, they, they think they know the rock. It's called, they call it the Rock of Agony. You can go there and go to the Rock of Agony. And it will grip your heart because there he agonized and sweat the drops of blood. If there's any other way, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. For the love that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has won the victory, and has sat down, completing the work. We know what that means, right? right. To sit down. Sit down when the work has been completed. So the question goes to you and I tonight. Is there a joy set before you? Is the Lord ever before you? Are you living for him? Or is your life an example of Sisyphus? Rolling a rock up a hill only to have it roll back down at the end of the day. And then you got to wake up the next day and start all over again. But when you're living for him and when you have the Lord set before you, when you have a joy, when you have a love, when you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he is set before you, continually before you, there's a labor of love, loving him with all you have. And then the joy of loving and serving your family Husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives loving and honoring your husbands. Brothers and sisters loving one another. Brothers and sisters in the church caring for and bearing the burdens of the, the believers. Praying with one another. This is the joy that can be set before us. And so you can make a decision tonight. It may be the first time or it may just be a shift of your reason and purpose for living. You can walk out of here, you, you can say, you know, you could literally be a trash man. Remember, there was a show called, uh, what was the boss, something boss, where the, where the owner of the company showed up at work like they were just a regular worker, right? Remember that show? Yeah. Huh? Undercover, Undercover boss. boss. Yeah. Let's go ahead and see how it is for the rank and file employee, right? You, and I remember one. I never watched much of the show, but I remember there was one that was like, the, you know, waste management or something. And the boss went out with the people and you got down in the trash and the, you know, the whole thing and it was, you know, you could, be, you could have that job and have the, have the joy of the Lord set before you and have the joy and the love of your family and of your children and of your, your extended family and your, your brothers and sisters in Christ and love why you do what you do. Amen? And it's a labor of love.